I'm Stuart Brand. This seminar about long-term thinking is brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. If you would like to see high-quality videos of the talks in the series, including this one, they are available online for Long Now members at longnow.org. Hi, I'm Stuart Brand from the Long Now Foundation. Welcome this evening. It's kind of interesting how dimming the lights changes everything. It's, I can see how eclipses of the sun have always just stopped people in their tracks. Whoa, it's getting dark. What's going on? The fact that SETI was cut off in 1993 by Congress and then has prospered 11 years later to be the extraordinary uh, series of works that you'll be hearing about tonight may say something interesting about what kind of organizations can handle long-term projects. Uh, more and more we're seeing, especially with environmental activities, the governments are almost the worst and all over the world, not just the American government. And private NGOs and foundations, uh, even more than universities in many cases, are stepping up to these long-term projects uh, for slow, big works, um, discovering whether there's other intelligence and technology in the universe is definitely a big project. And as you'll hear tonight, it's also necessarily a slow and steady and gradual and aggregate one. So it's just impressive to me that, that individuals and foundations and NGOs are where the, the so-called social sector is where the long-term action is going on these days. Uh, Jill Tarter, <laughs> uh, back in the year 2000, coming up to the end of it, everybody was worried about Y2K. And uh, Alexander Rose and Danny Hillis had been working like mad to finish the first prototype of the 10,000-year clock, which was going to tick away and be actually telling time on New Year's Eve, the year 2000. And it was going to bong twice, once for each thousand years that it I was referring to in the calendar. And we were going to have a big public event somewhere here at Fort Mason. But you may remember everybody was worried then. They were worried about two things. They were worried about Y2K, which was going to shut down civilization. And they were worried about uh, terrorists uh, who were going to attack things like the Golden Gate Bridge uh, because it was you know, a big New Year's event. And so we tried to have a public event around uh, the, the opening of the clock and the bonging of the clock. And we were basically prevented from having a public event because it was too dangerous. What if the lights go out? What if there's an earthquake? What if terrorists come? We said, terrorists, come on, be serious. And we were wrong. And in fact, there was a terrorist who was coming across the border in Seattle who wanted to bomb either the Golden Gate Bridge or Los Angeles Airport or both if he could. So... Um, Y2K was a bust, but actually there was something going on with terror. But we still had this clock that was going to tick and then bong, and we just had a private little gathering around the clock in a, in a tiny building here, over here in the Presidio. Only 12 or 15 people were there. Jill Tarter was one of them. Please welcome Jill Tarter.
Yeah, Stuart, that was a really memorable New Year's Eve. That was really fun, watching Danny's slowest computer, right? Um, I'm going to talk to you about SETI, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. And uh, I've said that it's necessarily a long-term strategy. Well, I mean, we could detect evidence of extraterrestrial intelligence tomorrow. So why do I claim that it's a long-term strategy? And the answer is because it already has been. We've uh, been asking this are we alone question for a very long time, going back into the Egyptian time, but here I've started with the Greeks, um, with uh, Epicurus and his student Metrodorus of Chaus, and uh, then comes al along comes Lucretius, the atomists. Um, oops, wrong button. In, um, excuse me. I'm not very good left-handed. I'm just finding out I'm uh, supremely right-handed. So we will uh, excuse this. Let's reorient things. Can you hear me? <laughs> okay. So the Greeks, the Romans, um, Chinese during the Sun Dynasty, um, and then came the Roman Church when things got a little toasty and a little bit controversial. But all of these people basically saying, um, the plurality of worlds, other worlds inhabited by other beings. Um, fortunately for researchers such as myself, um, kind of towards the end of the 20th century, the rules of the game changed. We went from an environment where all we could do was ask the priests and the philosophers and get an answer in terms of whatever belief system was in vogue. All right. Now, what happened in 1959 and then in 1960 was the publication of a very seminal paper and the first observation to try and detect evidence of extraterrestrial technology. And so we went from asking the philosophers to trying to do an experiment. And as this cartoon indicates, uh, we may not know what the correct experiment is, and we may not use our equipment uh, as wisely as, uh, as we'd like, but indeed, it's a new era. We're in the experimental age of SETI, and it's taken thousands of years to get here. Okay, so in terms of the modern philosopher's approach to SETI, we're basically saying we don't know what the answer is. Either we're alone or we're not. Either answer is um, a mighty sobering thought, first by Pogo and then copied by Walt Kelly, Calvin and Hobbes. And most recently, what's your opinion of the search for extraterrestrial intelligence? Can't think of a better place to look. For those of us who claim that we cannot find any intelligence in Washington, I'm very partial to this particular cartoon. So within that background, that sort of approach to this old are we alone question, we find a new science, a new old science of astrobiology. It's new because there's new money. It's old because we've been doing astrobiology for uh, the last 30 years. And it's the question of how we might possibly understand the origins of life on this planet and be able to recognize signatures of life on other worlds. And part of this is very important for me 
because in green here you'll see a little bit of highlighted text. Um, this is all part of a political rehabilitation process. In 1993, SETI became the four-letter S-word that you didn't say at NASA headquarters. And now we're seeing embedded in this newly funded endeavor called astrobiology, we're seeing um, the uh, ability to and desire to look for the biosignatures of technological civilizations. So it's okay now to go looking for mathematicians as well as microbes. And so in this uh, new environment, there's lots of attention being paid to trying to define, for example, what is life and what might be signatures of life. And it's very, very hard to define life on the basis of life as we know it. We don't have a general theory of life. And so um, in the SETI world, we just proceed with some very pragmatic definitions. And you might want to argue with me about some of these at the end of the talk. All right, I claim that life is a necessary precursor of any sort of technology that can modify its environment in ways that you can sense over interplanetary or interstellar distances. Further, that intelligence is the ability to construct and operate some sort of large transmitter. And lastly, SETI, we can now define in a politically correct manner as being that branch of astrobiology which takes advantage of the deliberate actions of the intelligent inhabitants in order to detect habitable worlds. Now, that's great, but I have to, uh, I have to do a little truth in advertising. I don't know how to find intelligence. Nobody does. There could be worlds out there that were populated by enormously intelligent analogs of whales and dolphins. Those creatures do not modify their environment in ways that we can sense across interstellar distances and tell the difference between intelligence and life. So what we really do in the SETI business is look for evidence of somebody else's technology. That's what we've done from the beginning. Since 1959, the paper by Kokoni and Morrison and the first radio observation by Frank Drake. We're actually trying to look out at the universe and see if we can see evidence of another technological species. So with this question, um, we have um, a number of possibilities. I mean, it, it actually may be the case that intelligent life is easier to find than non-intelligent life. There are claims, the Rare Earth book is, is one among them, that uh, microbial life is likely to be um, everywhere in the universe, but complex life will be very rare indeed. Actually, there are no data as yet to support that. It could be that complex life and microbial life are equally abundant or nowhere at all except here. Um, and intelligence may occupy additional real estate that is not open to the non-intelligent variety of life, and that may give us other opportunities to find it. 
Um, so what we would like to do in the coming years, decades, centuries perhaps, is to look at the universe and to look for signs of technology. Just however we can, we'll talk about some dedicated facilities that we're planning on building. And also we have a long history of using specialized instrumentation on more general purpose facilities. And there has been a great deal of searching through data sets that have been amassed for other purposes, other scientific studies. But basically, when we're talking about looking for intelligence and talking about looking for technology, um, there's almost no limits to what might be possible and what might be appropriate to look for. Nevertheless, I'm going to give you some amazing kinds of examples, um, the sorts of things that most people don't think about when they think about SETI. They just they think we look for radio signals and that's it. But, but indeed, there's this whole question of can we see any evidence in the universe of astroengineering, somebody else's technology? Well, are there any cosmic miracles out there? Well, what would that be? Um, we heard the talk last month about the singularity. So can we see any evidence that the universe has been enormously reworked and re-engineered? by someone's technology. Seaford galaxies, when they were first discovered, were dubbed kind of as a joke, the industrial accidents of the cosmos, because these galaxies appear to have suffered enormous explosions at their centers, and there's gas rushing out of the center at very large velocities. Um, today we think that's all due to the activities of very massive black holes at the centers of these galaxies. But early on, it was at least a plausible suggestion. Dyson spheres are something else that we might find. Uh, Freeman Dyson suggested that an advanced technology wouldn't think of wasting all of the energy that was being generated by its star. Um, it would, in fact, create a habitat, um, a fragmented habitat that orbited its star and captured all the energy that was being released. And then what you would see, uh, you wouldn't see the star anymore, but what you would see is the waste heat, um, the infrared radiation coming out of the backside of this uh, Dyson sphere. Or if it wasn't a complete sphere, uh, you might see a star with a huge infrared excess. Um, that was an amazing idea when Dyson proposed it. Well, guess what? We've detected a number of stars with infrared excesses. It turns out that's one of the properties of building a planetary or a protoplanetary disk. Um, and so, although we found exactly what Dyson suggested, we had another, more plausible explanation for it, and no one has yet suggested that any of the IR excess stars that we've detected are Dyson spheres. But if on further deliberation, some of them turn out to have some peculiarities, maybe this Dyson Sphere um, concept will be revisited. Gamma ray bursts were discovered by some secret military Vela satellites, and we now know that these enormously energetic events have been happening uh, more frequently in the past throughout the universe. Um, 
We're not really sure what they are. There are some competing theories. Uh, but along the way, somebody wondered if these might be evidence of a matter, antimatter rocket, which was accelerating. And so they took all the gamma ray bursts that had been uh, detected to date and tried to line them up in four-dimensional space to see if you could get a trajectory for an interstellar spacecraft that was producing gamma rays when the matter and antimatter annihilated. Also, it was suggested that, um, you know, an advanced technology is going to make some energy somehow. Uh, maybe they're using fission as their main power source. And if they do, they've got a nasty problem of disposing of fissile waste. Well, one clean uh, disposal mechanism is to throw it into your star. And if that's the case, then some astronomer somewhere might look up at a star that's like the sun and suddenly begin to see these enhancement of rare earth elements like Chrysodymium and neodymium and that sort of thing um, was a nice hypothesis. In fact, we've seen at least one such star. Shabilsky's star has an enormous overabundance. These are the dark uh, filled circles versus the open circles. This is increasing weight, atomic weight. Here's iron. And for things above iron, Shabilsky's star has a huge excess in these rare earth elements. And people are trying to figure out what this is all about. So far, they're using more conventional explanations. Um, radiation pressure lifting those uh, heavy metals up from the center of the star. Um, if at some future date that theory turns out to run into difficulties, uh, perhaps we'll take a look at this idea of astroengineering again. We see some methane in the atmosphere of Mars in the last couple of months that we can't explain. Is it biology? Is it the result of some sort of methanogens, extant life? Is it volcanism, active volcanism that we're not aware of? Is it some kind of engineered signature? It's an open question. Um, if you're not doing fission as your energy source, you might decide to use fusion. And uh, if you're going to do fusion on large scale and do it in space because you um, would like to keep the problem of tritium leakage, um, the poison that that is, away from your population, um, then some astronomer studying the heavens at the right frequency might suddenly discover a source of tritium. It has an emission that's a comparable to the 1420 megahertz emission of normal hydrogen. But that's really weird, because tritium only has a half-life of 12 and a half years. So if there isn't a nearby supernova, then you'd be really startled. And you might think that somebody up there is doing some astroengineering. Maybe we'll find the, the monolith on the moon, as Clark suggested. Or maybe um, in some other planetary system, they've erected a planetary-wide radar system to help warn against incoming impacts from asteroids and to avoid them. Uh, was, early on, it was suggested that a good evidence of somebody else's te technology might be um, if they were traveling between the stars in long, slow ships. Um, they might have to stop off in our solar system, for example, and uh, chew up a few asteroids 
to replenish their raw materials. Um, in which case we might see evidence of their starship, their slow ship, uh, in orbit around an asteroid. Or we might see some asteroids disappearing, and nobody's counting them. Uh, as it turns out, guess what? We've seen an asteroid with something in orbit around it. Looks like a rock, not a spaceship, but it's an interesting idea. And for additional asteroids with satellites, we'll keep that in our back pocket as a possible explanation. Long-delayed echoes, something that amateur radio operators are very familiar with. Um, uh, sometimes at low um, frequencies, long wavelengths, the characteristics of the ionosphere cause you to transmit a signal and then uh, an unreasonably long time later get that signal echoed back. That can be explained most of the time by ionospheric uh, conditions, but perhaps other people have suggested that uh, there might be probes in our solar system that have picked up that signal and transponded it back and, and at, at the base of it this is uh, the um, the idea behind the signal that comes from um, the star Vega in the movie Contact. It's the first broadcast of the uh, Olympics with Hitler. So this might turn out to be an evidence, some evidence of astroengineering someday. Um, again, spacecraft sent here to wait while intelligence develops over the eons on Earth. Um, might have been placed into certain orbits in the solar system where the gravitational potential is fairly well balanced and it's, you don't have to waste a lot of energy in station keeping. Um, for the Sun and the Earth, there are five so-called Lagrange points. For the Earth and the Moon, again, another set of five. And uh, we've kind of taken a quick look at some of these to see whether there are any big, bright, shiny objects orbiting there. We probably would have detected a starship enterprise, but not a lot less. If there are dark, small objects in these locations, our technology has not yet investigated it well enough to have found them. And of course, the last idea is um, maybe one of the oldest. When pulsars, rotating neutron stars that pr produce a radio signal with an incredibly accurate period, when they were first detected, the um, researchers who found them named them little green men, thinking that nature could never produce such an absolutely perfect signal. After they found three or four, they scratched their heads and figured that was an awful lot of little green men. And uh, somebody remembered a theory by Gamow in the 30s that would explain it in terms of a spinning neutron star. So this is a long bit of discussion about some kinds of things that might someday turn up to be evidence of somebody's engineered world. And so we've, in the discussion of what technologies we should go looking for in a purposeful search, not something that we might uh, run into someday, but a systematic search whose negative results could perhaps be significant. Um, you sit around and you try and figure out what to look for, and, and these five are the ones that come up most frequently. Um, they're certainly not exhaustive, but they are the most frequent. 
And you look at the first four and you say, it's really hard to plan a systematic kind of search for any of that activity. Information exchange is something that we could look for systematically and we could look for signals that are either intentional, intended to attract our attention, or that are some kind of leakage byproduct of um, a civilization's use of information. So when you're looking for signals out there on the sky, you have to say, what's the natural background? So here's frequency or wavelength or energy. Okay, many, many orders of magnitude. Essentially 14 orders of magnitude from there to there. Question is, um, what, on average, from any piece of sky, how much flux is coming in? How much energy? And you have visible starlight, you have infrared glow from the dust between the stars, there's an X-ray background, a gamma-ray background, an ultraviolet background. Down here in the radio, you have a synchrotron emission, and here's the three-degree background left over from the Big Bang. This is all the natural noise that signals would have to be com compete with to be detectable. And over the past 40 years, we've kind of concentrated on the microwave portion of the spectrum, short radio wavelengths, because that background's so low. And more recently, we've opened up the optical window. Um, on average, the background here is very large, but you have to realize it's average. And you can put filters on your observations. You can filter in frequency, you can filter in time, or you can filter in space. And if, in fact, you filter in time and make short enough observations and can count the number of photons that arrive in a nanosecond, then, in fact, the stellar background becomes very low and optical SETI becomes practical. Um, when you're searching for signals, and this is actually a signal. This is a signal from the Pioneer 10 spacecraft out beyond the edge of the solar system. I think it was about 7 billion miles when we picked this signal up. And that's the information coming down from Pioneer 10 at 16 bits per second. Not 16 kilobits, 16 bits per second. So you can almost take a pencil and decode that structure. Um, in searching for signals, uh, they might be doing something that we don't know about. There's certainly physics that we haven't yet discovered. They might be using new physics. An advanced technology could be uh, doing something that's inconceivable from our point of view. Well, there isn't a whole lot we can do about that uh, except to stay around long enough to get smart enough to invent that ourselves, and then we can use it. Um, we are really stuck with the fact that we're here in the 21st century and we have certain tools and we have certain knowledge and that's all we can use. And so in our searches to try and explore systematically, what we do is we take ourselves and we use our technology to calibrate what would be a significant null result. So for example, we can ask, how sensitive would I have to be what would it take to detect the analog of an Earth television broadcast anywhere in the Milky Way galaxy? And we can calculate that sensitivity level. And then if we do an exhaustive search to that level and come up with a null result, it's pretty significant. If we make the same uh, calculation and say, um, what would it take 
to detect uh, a microwave planetary, interplanetary radar system for asteroid collision avoidance. I make some guesses and make some calculations and do a search to that level and you come up with a null result. It's hard to know whether that's significant because it isn't something we do. It isn't something that we can calibrate. Um, so we are using ourselves as a calibration tool in this whole searching. And all of what SETI is doing is really just an extension of known physics and technology. And we look for unintentional signals. If we find them, that's fine. There's not a lot we can say about what they might be. Um, and we can look for deliberate signals. And here, now you can talk about the physics of the universe that we share in terms of specifying what a deliberate signal might look like. The transmitter might decide to create a signal that's almost natural, that looks almost like some signal that comes from, from the sky, knowing that the receiving civilization will grow up and build instruments to look at the sky and will eventually get pretty good detectors for these different kinds of natural phenomena. And so they will be using a net to, to bring in signals, and if your signal, your deliberate signal, happens to have the characteristics of one of these natural ones, it will be caught in that net. It might not be recognized as being special and slightly different for a while, but at least it will be detected. So you can imagine um, turning stars on and off or creating some screen in front of a star that appears to turn them on and off, a blinking, winking star. You can imagine that uh, an advanced technology might set off things that look like supernova explosions, um, the, the end phases of massive stars when they, they explode, um, and synchronize them so they could all go off at the same time in various uh, widely separated places in the galaxy. Or remember the pulsars, those rapidly rotating and periodic radio sources? Well, pulsars with age slow down. They all do. We understand the physics of that. What about if you had a pulsar that didn't slow down at all? Its P dot, its rate of slowdown, was absolutely zero. That would violate the physics we know about, and it would take a while to find out, but, but we'd find that pulsar, and eventually we recognize that it was very strange. So let's keep on with the pulsar idea. Okay? So pulsars, rotating neutron stars, their magnetic fields and their rotation axis are not aligned, and so you can get uh, emission down the magnetic axis. And like a lighthouse, if it should happen to go across the Earth, it gives you a very strong radio signal. And pulsars have different periods. And this is a period of a quarter of a second. This is a period that's slightly faster, about a tenth of a second. And here's a period that's a millisecond. That pulsar is rotating a thousand times a second. Right? And we know about pulsar periods and the physics of neutron stars, that there are occasionally star quakes. And so the star readjusts itself, and so its moment of inertia changes, and its period changes abruptly. And then sometimes it relaxes um, to a different value. But what we've never found is a pulsar that goes from one period to another period, back to the first period, 
onto the second, back to the first, onto the second. You get the kind of idea. That would be another example of a signal that's almost natural. You'd find it in your pulsar searches. You'd eventually recognize that something strange is going on. All right. The last kind of signal is one that nature can't produce at all. A signal that technology can make, but as far as we know, nature is incapable of making. All right. Uh, one such example may be this phenomena that physicists are getting all excited about called twisted light. We think about light as being a plane wave. It has a sense of polarization, so an orientation of the wave front, but it also has angular momentum. And twisted light is this light with angular momentum, and it can be quantized. You can have one helix, you can have a double helix, you can have a triple helix. People are now beginning to suggest that it may be possible to encode information in such twisted light. And we don't think nature can do this. We're not sure about it. There might be some natural sources of twisted light. We just haven't been looking long enough to be sure, but indeed this might in fact turn out to be an example of a type of signal that nature can't produce. But overall, SETI has been concentrating on coherent signals. This is the kind of thing that we've really been looking at most um, earnestly for the last 40 years. Signals that are compressed either in frequency or in time. And the product of their time duration, delta t, and their frequency width, delta nu, is on the order of one. It's not equal to one. It's certainly not less than one because the uncertainty principle tells us it can't be. This product, delta t, delta nu, has to be greater than or equal to one. That's this uncertainty principle limit. But technology has lots of different ways of producing signals that crowd up to this limit. As opposed to natural emissions, which exist in a totally different portion of this diagram. Natural emission has a time bandwidth product that's enormous. So if we found this kind of signal, we would be very uh, eager and, and probably right uh, to, to decide that it was technology. So what we're looking for is signals that are compressed in time, that are broadband, and we look for those at the optical, and we're looking for signals that are compressed in frequency that have a reasonably long time duration, and those we look for uh, at radio frequencies. And the, the split between optical and radio here has to do with the interstellar medium and how it modifies signals as they propagate through the medium at various frequencies. So since 1960, since Frank Drake did Project Ozma, the first search, I've been able to find in the literature 101 different papers. The searches range from very long wavelength radio uh, waves at 350 megahertz to very high frequency gamma rays. And they're basically three different types. They're directed, that is, somebody puts a telescope proposal in, gets time, and decides what to do with the telescope. Or commensal, that means somebody piggybacks on somebody else's observations. Or somebody does some data mining of existing data. And the huge space that we need to cover in SETI, um, the phase space, is at least nine-dimensional, all of the different th ways that we might need to look. Uh, so people make guesses about magic frequencies or magic times or magic places so that they can have a hypothesis, that they can explore and get a, get a program finished in a time that's 
usually short compared to the lifetime of a graduate student, because that's kind of our scientific unit of time. All right? So on the telescope today, we've got about a dozen searches. Some of them are sky surveys. Some of them are targeted searches. Targeted searches pick out directions where they think there's likely to be a higher probability of there being uh, an advanced technology. Those directions are actually the directions of stars like the sun, because the only technology we know about exists around one such. Um, the other way to search is to look in all directions, but there uh, you're going to end up spending less time at any one place, at any one frequency, and so you'll be less sensitive. But both make search, uh, both make sense, or both are being done. Okay, that's just a that's just a you know an advertisement and to wake you up. This is the search that that the SETI Institute has been doing for the last ten years and finished in March. Project Phoenix. The Phoenix uh, refers to rising from the ashes of congressional termination. <laughs> All right, so. There are other people doing SETI in the microwave. There's a program um, at Arecibo Observatory. Dan Wertheimer, Dave Anderson have developed that. It's a piggyback program called Serendip 4, and you probably know it better because it produces some data for SETI at Home, a distributed computing project that's been enormously successful. Uh, there's a project, a sky survey, that was running for a number of years in uh, Massachusetts at uh, Harvard. Uh, that's been interrupted by an unfortunate wind accident that uh, put the telescope on the ground, and it has not yet been repaired, but we hope it will be. Uh, a clone of that is running in Argentina on these two telescopes in the Southern Hemisphere, so sky surveys. Uh, another s uh, sky survey in the Southern Hemisphere is on the 60-meter telescope at Parks. Uh, two of these beams of the 13-beam multi-beam uh, focal plane array are used to look at SETI. Any signal that shows up in two beams, two different places on the sky, is interference. Something that's in only in one is interesting. And then there's an amateur project, um, an organization called the SETI League, trying to get people with backyard telescopes to organize and point 5,000 telescopes at the sky all the time. If you did this, you could tessellate the whole sky and you could find transient signals, things that only happen every once in a while when all the other big telescopes are either not in use or looking in the wrong direction. Now, Project Argus doesn't have 5,000 telescopes. It's got 100. And it may grow in time to be a very useful uh, addition to all of the SETI endeavors. And lastly, Project Phoenix, which just finished up on a large telescope at Arecibo and a second telescope in, in Jodrell Bank in England. We're also doing optical SETI. It requires using two very fast photon counters, photodiodes, um, and using them in coincidence to get rid of backgrounds. The first system went on the telescope at Berkeley. Dan Wertheimer built that. Paul Horowitz built a similar system in Harvard, but found that the photodiodes that he used would arc, would break down on humid Massachusetts summer nights. Um, so his false positive rate was much too high, even with two detectors. So he organized a project with his friend Dave Wilkinson at Princeton to have the students at Princeton refurbish this telescope on campus, put in two other detectors, and run in coincidence between Harvard and Princeton, recognizing that it takes light one points or radio waves, 1.6 milliseconds to travel between there. And so now a signal that's of interest not only triggers the two detectors here and here, 
but does so within this time window. And the internet and GPS receivers are good enough to get time synchronization for that. Small telescope outside of Sydney in Campbelltown, Australia. And this is a telescope, uh, this is a project on the Lick Observatory Telescope in California. And it is, in fact, the best of the SETI optical uh, systems because it uses three photodiodes in, in uh, coincidence and essentially has no false alarm rate. Then Jeff Marcy, who has found more planets than anybody on our planet, has reduced, reanalyzed all of the data that he's taken to find planets looking for laser lines and hasn't found any or I'd be telling you a different story tonight. So that's, that's SETI today. What about SETI tomorrow? Well, the folks at Harvard are going to begin operating this inexpensive sky survey telescope this year. And it will do drift scans, uh, look at a declination strip as the sky turns at night. And if they ever get 200 clear nights in Harvard, Massachusetts, then they will have looked at the 80% of the sky that, that can be seen from there. Um, at the SETI Institute and the University of California at Berkeley, we're building the Allen Telescope Array. That's our tomorrow. Uh, and I'll tell you some more about this in a little bit because this is what I'm really jazzed about. Um, the thing to note is that all of this is being done with private funding. Okay, what about the day after tomorrow? Well, we have plans for that too. Remember the, the Argus project, trying to find transient signals? The real way to do that is to build a large array of a very large number of small elements. These are only about a foot across. They're um, Archimedes spiral receivers and very inexpensive digital radios. And combine thousands of these small receivers to get some sort of collecting area and sensitivity, form all possible beams on the sky, and then do your Fourier transform, your spectroscopy search on each beam. Um, we know how to do it in principle. We're doing these prototypes. Problem is it takes so much computing that we can't find it, or we can't afford it right now. So we're going to have to wait for Moore's Law to drive down the price of computing so that in a decade or so we can afford to do something like 10 to the 16 operations per second. And when we get there, we'll build more instruments and we have an even bigger telescope that would take 10 to the 21 operations per second. But again, that's, from my point of view, that's ex precisely where you'd like your complexity to be, in a technology that is providing exponential performance per dollar in the future, at least in, through the foreseeable future. All right, and what about radio SETI, or I'm sorry, what about the day after tomorrow for optical SETI? We would like to find ways of piggybacking on large 10-meter optical segmented mirrors that are being constructed for finding very high-energy gamma rays. Um, these are essentially focal plane arrays of 412 photodiodes. And this system is hoping to see air showers, the Cherenkov radiation from these very energetic gamma rays passing through the atmosphere. And so it throws out all events which are a single photodiode, a single pixel only. 
We're trying to figure out how to make a trigger that will capture all the single pixel events when it's the same pixel on this telescope, this telescope, that telescope, and that telescope. Because that single pixel event seen by all four telescopes would be a good optical SETI candidate. Um, there are orbital telescopes being planned a few decades from now to look for terrestrial planets. This is Darwin, the European version, and this is terrestrial planet finder, NASA's version. We're looking at ways of piggybacking on these. So optical SETI in the near future is a process of looking for ways to piggyback on large projects. And there are some more coming up that we're still scratching our heads about. The extremely large optical telescope, the overwhelmingly large optical <laughs> telescope. And as the telescopes get bigger, the amount of sky they see gets smaller how useful these will be for doing commensal kinds of SETI is yet to be determined, but we're keeping our eye on them. All right? And then, the day after tomorrow, we're already in the plans for that in the radio, I'm going to tell you about the Allen Telescope Array. The international radio astronomy community would like to build a telescope that's 100 times bigger. The Allen Telescope Array will have 10 to the 4, 10,000 square meters of collecting area. The square kilometer array will have a million square meters of collecting area. And we'd like to do it as an international project. We'd like to keep the cost under a billion dollars. That translates to a thousand dollars per square meter. I've actually been to places where the carpet on the floor costs more than that. So that's the challenge, to do this affordably. Uh, here's a plan from the U.S. that's based on the Allen Telescope Array. This is an Australian design, uh, Lunarberg lenses. Here's a fully electronically phased array. A Canadian design with essentially flat concrete um, dishes lined with metal. Uh, very long focal ratio. So up here, where the dish focuses, there's a focal plane array held aloft by a hot air balloon. And the Chinese have lots of limestone karst They'd like to build lots of Arecibos, and that's a cylindrical paraboloid, another Australian idea. We're going to decide on the site in 2006, and hopefully a concept which might be some hybrid of all of these that's affordable in 2008. And the reason that SETI is interested in this, the reason I spend my time on this, is because it's a factor of 100 in sensitivity. It means I can look a factor of 10 farther into the galaxy. So what does that translate into? Well, here's what I did with Project Phoenix. I looked at a 1,000 stars that were within 200 light years of the Earth. Here's what we're going to do in the next decade with the Allen Telescope Array. We're probably going to get about a million stars observed. Here's what we can do with the Square Kilometer Array. So now that's Phoenix, that's the ATA, and that's the Square Kilometer Array. Now we're really beginning to have tools that are commensurate with the size of the task. All right, and what about the day after the day after tomorrow? All right, our biggest pro problem in SETI is our own technology. We find signals all the time. We have to try and find ways to discriminate against our own signals so that we can recognize someone else's signals. Um, we are looking and have been since 1979 at the far side of the moon, the one place that never has the Earth in its sky. So the moon is a natural shield. There is a radio quiet zone that's been defined there. We're only going to get there as part of an infrastructure that gets developed for other processes. I mean, 
I'm having trouble raising the funds for the Allen Telescope Array. Trying to raise funds for this lunar observatory, I think, is a bit out of the question. So we'll be part of something else if we get there. Um, and in the meantime, we have to develop very proactive mitigation uh, techniques on Earth. Remember that the, dark, the far side of the moon is also the dark side of the moon half the time. So this is also a good place for optical SETI. And as we try and make these long-term plans, we have to fight with other people who are making long-term plans for the moon. Um, again, here's the Lagrange structure. Here's the L2 point behind um, the, if you think of that as the Earth, and you think, all right, this is the Earth, that's the moon. Directly behind the uh, moon is the L2 point for the Earth-Moon system. Both that point and the L2 point for the Earth-Sun are being looked at by NASA as places to do spacecraft um, construction and repair. So the quiet far side of the moon is likely to become um, developed and not so quiet if we don't do some sort of coordination. All right. I've been telling you what we've been doing and what our plans are, and now I'm going to make a statement, which is that unless technology is long-lived, SETI will not succeed. The corollary to that is that anybody we find will be older than us. Here's a cartoon of one way that technology might develop. Okay, it goes along, it's pretty primitive, then it gets into an exponential phase, that's where we find ourselves today. And to date, we haven't found any exponentials in nature that don't saturate, so we can expect that it might turn over. All right, that's one model. Suppose the singularity is correct, and suppose it doesn't turn over. Suppose it keeps on going. Well, it keeps on going. It means they continue to exist. So the conclusion is still the same, that if technology is long-lived, then we're going to find them in their old age. We won't find them when they're younger and more primitive than us because we can't. Their technology isn't detectable. So if technology lasts for a long time, then the ones we find will be long-lived and old. If technology doesn't last for a long time, if it crashes, then SETI won't succeed. So we're talking about detection of someone more advanced than we are, which is why Phil Morrison calls SETI the archaeology of the future. All right? It's, the signal is their past because of the finite speed of light travel, but it tells us that we have a future. And in all the stuff we've done so far, we've looked at about 100 megahertz of the spectrum over most of the sky. We've looked at about 1,000 stars uh, to a factor of 10 more sensitive over a lot more of the radio spectrum as targeted searches. And we've looked at, uh, which, which means that we would have found a 100 kilowatt transmitter uh, beamed by a 100 meter dish at 100 light years. And then at optical wavelengths, we've looked at actually 10,000 10, stars now uh, with the ability to, uh, to detect one of these Helios class uh, Star Wars super lasers that Livermore is developing if it were beamed by a six-meter telescope from 100 light years. Basically, there's a lot of stuff to go looking for yet. We've barely, you know, we've barely begun to scratch the surface. And so the movie Contact did get it right. We do need a better telescope, 
And that's the Allen Telescope Array I've been alluding to. We called it the One Hectare Telescope when we developed it because it had it was going to have 10,000 square meters of collecting area. It got called the Allen Telescope Array when Paul Allen funded the technology development phase. It will be made up of 356 meter dishes, be located north of Mount Lassen at the Hack Creek Radio Observatory. It will simultaneously cover all radio frequencies from half a gigahertz to 12 gigahertz. As a huge wide field of view, there are essentially four independent telescopes simultaneously. Um, and it will have an imaging correlator to make radio pictures of the sky, and it will have the ability to mitigate in real time against interference. And our partners here are the University of California and the SETI Institute. That funny telescope is an offset Gregorian, primary, secondary, feed, and the green shroud is metal and it keeps it from seeing the ground. The telescope is actually not pointing at the ground, it's pointing at the horizon. So that's how the radio waves are focused on that feed. And it's a team of old and young people. And it's really very exciting that this is an opportunity to help us replace a lost generation of students in the university system. Um, the uh, US began building these fantastic national facilities, National Radio Astronomy Observatory, the very large array, Arecibo, very large, long baseline array. And as we did so, we killed the university programs. And so um, there are very few young instrumentalists in our universities today. And this is an opportunity to bring back folks that not only have hair, but dark hair into the process. And we're really excited about this. And, and then they can see a future, because as we go from the Allen Telescope Array to the Square Kilometer Array, um, this is a good place to be, learning how to build these instruments. So we, we designed the telescope because it was going to be cheaper. And it turns out it's not just cheaper, it's a lot better. If I look at the sky, that's the amount of sky I see with Arecibo. It's not a whole lot. When I look at the sky with the Allen Telescope Array, that's how much sky I see at any one time. And an imaging correlator can allow my radio astronomy colleagues to make a picture of that huge area of the sky with very high spatial resolution and a thousand spectral channels. All right. At the same time that they're looking and making their pictures, I can make up to 16 individual dual polarization little phased beams anywhere in here, and I can put them on the stars that I want to observe. And if I don't have 16 stars, I can put them on four stars at four different frequencies. And so we end up with a win-win situation, and that's the beam um, shape. It's a win-win situation. We do radio astronomy and SETI at the same time, and because I'm on the telescope 24-7 and I can look at multiple stars at once, the search gets speeded up by a huge amount. And because we have 350 telescopes and we have to combine the signals from all of them, we have a lot of free parameters and we can actually place nulls arbitrarily on the sky. And where would we place them? We'd place them on the orbit of a satellite to get it out of our data. It's never been possible before. This is the first dish that was made uh, in Idaho Falls, Idaho by John Anderson. His company usually makes satellite backyard dishes and trailer hitches. Well, he made a slightly bigger offset special satellite dish for us. It takes about three minutes to form that dish. And we have to transport them from Idaho to California. We do it on this transport. Uh, most of the time we go down the road with these dishes straight up and down. 
because of the lower resistance. But um, we come to the 14-foot-4 bridges, overpasses on California freeways, and you tilt it down to go under the freeway. The uh, rest of the telescope parts are made in other parts of the country. They're shipped to Hat Creek, and then very simply, with just a few people, they literally go together like tinker toys. They're all ready, set, interlocked. So in an afternoon, a few people can build a telescope. And basically our schedule is going to call for building one a day for about a year. So we have three down, 347 to go. That's, that's, that's a fringe, right? That shows that these three telescopes work together, believe me. That's also pointing data that show that their pointing is incredibly accurate, much more accurate than we expect. And this is where we're going to be next fall. 32 antennas uh, at the Hat Creek Observatory. These are the three we have right now. We're busily trenching and getting the parts together and starting to assemble the rest of the telescope. This part of the project's all funded. So we will have 32 telescopes by the end of the year, and this is enough to start doing science. To get from there to where we'd like to be, which is here, is another two phases. We have to raise $16 million to match the current grant that Paul Allen is making available to ourselves, to us, to, um, to get to 206 dishes. <laughs> and uh, wish us luck. And then another 15 million to go from 206 to 350. Um, but it's doable. I mean, if it were, if we had all money in hand now, this in fact would be done in two years. So that's what we're busily working on at Hat Creek. All night I've been talking about listening. Um, but if everybody's listening and no one's sending, this might not work very well. So the question is, should we be transmitting? And then, if we decide, who should speak for her and what would they say? Well, transmission requires a more mature society than we are. It requires long-term commitment, long-term, and it requires global cooperation and coordination. So when we took a look at this at the SETI Institute, when we were doing a roadmap for the next couple of decades, um, we said at least for the near term, uh, transmitting is not in the picture. We're leaking anyway. For the near term, our I Love Lucy, our television and radio broadcasts are, are leaking out, so we don't have to bother transmitting. And um, beyond that, transmitting gets into the picture as we grow up, as we get to be more advanced as a technology. So we're betting that the more advanced technology out there is doing the transmitting, and we can start by listening. So I've been using long-term, and this is the Long Now Foundation, so the question is, what do I mean by those timescales? What does long-term mean in this kind of a picture? Well, there are a couple of timescales involved. If you're going to transmit, how long should you transmit? Well, if you buy what I told you earlier, which is we are the youngest technology that can play this game, any other technology out there that we can detect is older than we are, all right? then we need to think about transmitting at least as long as it would take an advanced technology to um, survey the galaxy. All right? Then you could take the other point of view and say, that's wrong, actually. We could say, we're the first technology. 
there isn't any other older technology, we're the first, in which case our transmission um, needs to go on long enough for technologies elsewhere to originate, evolve. So life needs to start and evolve into a technology. And then finally, there's the time scale um, involved with how long should we wait and actively seek a signal. Well, if transmission is the operative mode, so you're going to send out a signal, and that's necessary to attract someone's attention out there so that they will then transmit back to you, then you have to um, transmit at, uh, and wait and continue to be active in this field at least as long as the round-trip travel time to your target. So what are those timescales? Well, I'd say the first one's about a century, and I say that because if you look at optical SETI or microwave SETI, and you look at the exponential increase in the technology we're using, basically uh, we've been doing it for 40 years in the radio. It's not going to take much more than a couple of decades before um, we've done a reasonable search of the galaxy, assuming that this is the right thing to look at. So I would say probably an advanced technology can survey its galaxy in whatever technology it wishes to in a, in a, in a century. All right, the next time scale, I'd say that's really the time to intelligence. So the time from the origin of life to the development of technology, that's about four billion years. Now we're talking real time. And for this, how long do we have to be prepared to wait for a response? Well, if you're thinking that the target's within the Milky Way galaxy, that could be 200,000 years because the Milky Way galaxy's 100,000 years across. If you're thinking about somebody in the nearest galaxy, something like Andromeda, well, now you're talking about almost 6 mil million years. So the time scales are indeed long here. Well, you know, I said... We decided at the SETI Institute that transmission really is in our future. We're not yet grown up enough to do that, and we might take another look at that question. So, so what I did is I, I actually went to Google, everybody's favorite research tool, and I asked for the number of results looking at the X-year plan, whether it was one-year plan as a word or one as a numeral. And so the words are the blue and the numerals are the red, and... And you can basically see that um, uh, the, the uh, numerals get reused within any website, and so they're, these are not independent, but they, they're representative. And, and this is a logarithmic result, right? So that's 100,000, 10,000, 1,000. All right, so what's, what's significant? Um, if we're talking about 100-year plans, um, what's a significant number of hits? Well, you know, I Googled my name and I got a few thousand hits and I figure if the planet is, is, is serious about something, it's going to be more hits than, than just <laughs> the interest in me, right? And so I've sort of set this as an arbitrary limit and that means that you look at this and the 100-year plan, it doesn't, I mean, I would say that this is a, a slight indication that we really aren't ready for it. Uh, when you look at what these hits are, okay, hundred years and beyond, it's all religion and science fiction. Um, there are a couple of notable exceptions, right? The environmentalists are really looking at 500 years. They're, they're seriously discussing 500-year timescales. Whether they're discussing them knowledgeably or not uh, is another question and uh, something that uh, we have yet to, to understand. Um, 2000 got 
a big spike here because of Y2K. And uh, 10,000 actually has a lot more than uh, the thousands around it simply because of the nuclear waste disposal at Yucca Flats and the attempt to, to build a 10,000-year containment facility. And of course, there's a 10,000-year clock. So for me, the Long Now Clock and the library really offer the first opportunity to seriously address the idea of transmission right? and, and answer those tough questions. Now, so I would suggest that the people who wind the clock are going to speak for Earth. And what are they going to say? They're going to say whatever's in the library that's stored with the clock. And so I wonder if maybe we could be talking about some kind of synergistic transmission clock and a long hello, right? Could we first begin to, to seriously think about taking up transmission as an active long-term strategy? So I'm almost done, and I have to admit, I don't know whether SETI, which I love dearly and I enjoy doing enormously, um, will succeed or when it will succeed. The, the wisest thing, I think, that was ever said about that turns out to be the last sentence of that 1959 paper. Probability of success is difficult to estimate, but if we never search, the chance of success is zero. So I invite you to stay tuned because we are going to continue searching. And as we continue searching, we're going to, we, we put a significant amount of our energy into training the next generation. And so this is just a bald advertisement for a ninth grade curriculum that we published this past year called Voyages Through Time. No textbook, CDs, and some nice lightweight readers. Um, an integrated science curriculum based on evolution, starting with the uh, cosmic evolution, evolution of the universe, evolution of the solar system, life, hominid evolution, and ending up with the evolution of technology. So um, we think that uh, this may help some young people be able to take a long look at their past and look a little bit longer into the future. So that's what I had to say, and thanks very much for having me here. Thank you, Jill. Um, Kevin Kelly actually has the first question here. He says, uh, since you point out the efficiency of listening is so much greater than transmitting, why would any planet transmit? Maybe everybody in the universe is just listening. Uh, is there a possibility that's what's going on? Well, yeah. Here's one possible answer to that, Kevin. Um, suppose there's some kind of a threshold, an impediment, uh, an obstacle uh, from getting to be a young technology to an old technology. I can think of a number of them. If you're an old technology, you might transmit for the benefit of the emergent technologies simply so that it's possible to have a proof of the existence of a long-term future. There might be some cosmic morality or imperative to do that. 
that it might, knowing that it's possible to have a long-term future, may help you get through whatever that crisis is. Yeah. Um, maybe what do we we call them? Public announcements. Um, public service announcements. Maybe maybe that's what it is. Um, I had a question looking at the pictures of the Allen array, unlike things like the very large array where everything's in straight lines and so on, uh, is it art to have them uh, strewn around like trees or is there something else going on? Well, actually, they are as carefully, randomly placed as we can do given the trees and roads and buildings on the site. You would like to have a random distribution of the telescopes, and in particular of the baselines between each pair of telescopes on the ground, because that guarantees that when that array looks at the sky, you see a uniform beam, uniform coverage. You don't have these diffraction gratings and other things like that. So random on the ground means uniform on the sky, and I quickly showed a beam. I'm sure nobody, unless we have some um, closet astronomers in the, the uh, audience, but that, that turns out to be a point spread function to die for. That beam is beautiful. Nobody else can do anything like that. I think that random is so beautiful, it makes me think that there's an aesthetic coming for uh, you know, parks and cities and things like that. Did you use a computer to get the random yes. uh, distribution? Yeah, yeah we, we, used, we used a, actually this one was an annealing algorithm to get the, random, the optimal random distribution. The optimal random distribution. Some, some, some randoms are, are better be than others? What are you telling us? Some beams are better than others. Oh, okay. We got a feedback thing. We got to be careful of these mics. Uh, Brandon Lovejoy, you here? Had the question. Um, is there any region of the sky that you just have a feeling about? No. I'll take the extraterrestrials wherever I can find them. And uh, he goes on with a second question. Where's the after party? I assume that's after you find something. Actually, say a little bit about... I mean, you've spent 30 years failing. Uh, <laughs> you, you must have some plans for how Not success yet. where it plays out. How yes. does it play out? Well, it starts with the champagne. Um, whenever we observe, wherever we observe, um, there is a bottle of champagne on ice because that is our plan for success. Number one, contact, you know, the movie got that wrong. Nobody, nobody celebrated. We sure intend to. Um, the, the most important thing is to attempt to get an independent confirmation. Uh, SETI is an attractive nuisance. SETI is something that lots of people are interested in. Um, SETI is likely to become a target for potential hoaxes. And so our main concern is to verify that what we've detected is actually real and coming from the sky and is what we think it is. So the first step is to try and get independent confirmation from equipment we didn't build, software we didn't write. Um, having gotten that, we need to tell the world. And at this particular time in our development, we will do that in two steps. 
There will first be some discreet phone calls to, to our major donors, although none of them has made that a requirement of their funding. But as a courtesy, we will make these calls. We will submit a paper to the APJ letters, a paper that I told Stuart last night is essentially written except for a few pertinent details. <laughs> and every time we change our observing location or change our equipment, that paper gets updated. Right? So, um, we'll submit that, and then we'll have a press conference, and we'll tell the world, and we'll, we'll try and arrange it so that it's very important that attribution be fair. So um, the facility that we're using, the people who did the w research, um, all of that kind of thing, need, everybody needs to get credit. But we'll tell the world as quickly as we can because, oh, oh, I left one thing out. When we send the paper off for publication, we'll also send out an IAU telegram, which notifies all the observatories in the world um, about this phenomenon, which may be transient. We have no idea how long it will last. We want everyone who wants to and has some equipment and can look at this in a different way to use their uh, instrumentation to observe it, because we may have only found one manifestation of something else that, that's there. So the press conference should be fun. Where would you publish? Pardon me? Do you, have, do you have that paper written? Where would it be published? Oh, App J Letters is just because we're Americans, because that's the fastest publication for us. That's, that's what we do. Unless there's some other financial consideration from somebody else who <laughs> says they want to fund us if we'll publish with them. Okay. And you, you mentioned hoaxes. Do you sometimes red team your system where you try to fool it or have other people try to fool it? Well, what we've done in the past is use fiducials on the sky. Pioneer 10 used to be our favorite source. It's uh, way out beyond the edge of the solar system. It moves on the sky the way the stars do, at sidereal rate, um, and it had a narrowband transmitter. So it was, in fact, an extraterrestrial signal. And we look at that every day to make sure we could find it and detect it. And twice now, over the past 10 years, we didn't find it. Once in Australia, because the clock at parks where we were um, differed from the clock at MAPRA, our second telescope, by 21 seconds for reasons we have never discovered. But suddenly one day the clocks were 21 seconds different and we hadn't yet thought to tell the computer to keep an eye on the clocks. So we fixed the clock, we lost 24 hours of data, and we told the computer, you watch those clocks from now on. And then, um, let's see, my engineer has a really great way of saying this. Once over at Jodrell Bank, um, the system became electron-challenged. Somebody kicked the plug out of the rack. <laughs> and so we had another 24 hours of data that we had to, to throw away because we didn't know when it went bad. Um, so we do that kind of thing. Uh, we haven't challenged anyone to do hoaxes. Um, we simply do our own system testing. Uh, Challenging, offering somebody, think of how, how successful SETI at Home has been. Right? Just think about the idea of offering people the ability to try and, you know, encouraging them to hoax us. How many people here, by the way, are doing SETI at Home? Yeah. So, we probably don't have to encourage it. It might, unfortunately, happen. It certainly has happened. There have been hoaxes that uh, the community has dealt with.
Uh, here's a personal question from Ryan Junell and Natalie Amarato. You guys here? Wave your hand or something. Um, do you have spiritual needs as a human being? And if so, how does the search for ET address those needs? Oh. Um, I find the universe fantastically fascinating to try and understand a little bit. That's uh, that's my spirituality, trying to figure out how the universe works. And searching for ET is part of that because what it's doing is trying to figure out where we fit in to this cosmos. You know, it calibrates our place in the universe, or may someday calibrate our place. And so I think it's all part of... You know, that, that's a pretty profound question, are we alone? And uh, spending a lifetime trying to answer it you can't get much more spiritual than that, I don't think. Here's one from Jeff Perone. Um, I, there he is. Considering the culture-destroying impacts of Western civilization has had on less technologically developed societies, do you think advanced societies might hide themselves after a short burst of I Love Lucy or equivalent? Uh, the, the interaction between lesser and more developed technologies has been pretty corrosive in the past. Why would we be seeking out sure has. this problem? Uh, and you're going to hear lots more about that from Jared Diamond, right? Um, but think about it. What has been the overwhelming um, factor in cultural interactions on this planet? It's been the microbial interactions. It's been the disease vectors, right? The kind of interaction that we're talking about is not in that um, same camp. Um, John Heilbrunn, who's a historian of science and used to be chancellor at UC Berkeley, had, had looked for historical analogs of what the detection of extraterrestrial intelligence might be like to, to guess the total outcome and reactions. And his best, his, his best attempt was the rediscovery um, um, of the lost documents during the Dark Ages by the Moors in Alhambra and the re-enlightenment. Um, maybe that's a good model. Um, basically, I, you know, I... I confess I am probably the world's biggest Pollyanna here. I put that out. But, but think about, we're talking about a long-lived civilization. Technologies much older than we are. Because we can't find younger ones. We have to keep making that point. How did they get to be old? Probably by figuring out some way to master aggression. So now the question is, when they hear from us, do they go into hiding because we're still the brash aggressors? Could be. Could be. And they're going to wait to see whether we can get through that critical path, that step, to become an old technology ourselves. You're a person who's been sort of living a science fiction story <laughs> most of your life and, and once had a doppelganger out there playing it. Do you read science fiction? Um, I, I did a huge amount as a kid, 
And now I just, there, there are a couple of authors whose annual books I look forward to. But most of the time I read The Real Science, which is absolutely as exciting. Who are the authors you read their annual books? Well, it was Heinlein when he was alive and Clark, you know, my favorites. Oh, our Heinlein and Clark are probably my favorites, and Asimov when he was alive. Um, those, kind, those kinds of folks. More, more of the science-based than the fantasy-based. Do you have any questions for us? <laughs> Do you want to build a transmitter? More than most people we have had here, and more than most organizations they've represented, Jill's SETI Institute and the projects she's working on really live on money from people who think they're doing the right thing. So in her behalf, I will say, if you give money to SETI, you're giving it to a great long-term project. Thank you very much. Thanks, Stuart. This seminar about long-term thinking was brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. Thanks to Fora TV, you can see high-quality videos of the talks online by joining Long Now as a member at longnow.org. Thank you for listening. I'm Stuart Brand.